The heart is at the heart of our physical performance. And as the first racing resumes on the road, we've already had our first tragedy in the death of Niels Devrent due to apparent heart failure. With Bobby's own personal experience with the issue, we decided to sit down with Mike Lepp, the senior athletic advisor for NASCAR team Joe Gibbs Racing, to try and make sense of what is a complicated issue. This week on Put Your Socks On. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as always, I am joined, although this time direct from vacation, by Bobby J. Mate, how is vacay? I'm doing okay, Gus. I must say I am not the best at taking vacations and switching off. So I'm actually going to state it that my wife and daughters are on vacation and I'm just here for the for for the ride. It wasn't really the south of France trip that we were hoping for this year, but it's a really nice alternative. It's only 4 hours away from our home in Greenville, South Carolina, and it does feel like a totally different world down here. The beach, just the the golf courses, it's it's nice and relaxing. I just um not quite into that vacation mindset at the time. Yeah, it's uh going to be an interesting five more days down here cuz you can only ride on the beach and look at the golf courses that you hope to play, you know, so many times, but how how are you going? Mate, I'm well. Uh I had a little vacay of my own over the weekend. I turned 31. Uh and I well, self-admittedly, I'm a a bit of a uh, a Western enthusiast, um, <laughs> and so my girlfriend uh, got me uh, a weekend horse riding out in Western Colorado in the town of of Mika up in the wilderness area up there. So I got to you know live out a little dream. Uh, we had horses as 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 very young kids, but in the last twenty years or so, I haven't really had the chance to uh, you know live out my fantasy of of being a cowboy. So. On the weekend for a day, I got to do that. So I'm, I'm doing pretty well, mate. <laughs> man, oh man, happy birthday, bro. Thank you, mate. So, so did you get the full ensemble? You got the, the cowboy boots, the cowboy hat, the belt buckle, the whole nine yards? or? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I already had that, even uh, though I didn't. I was sort of one of those um, people who, you know, have all the gear, but have absolutely, they've got no legitimacy as a cowboy. And so, you know, I got to finally put that gear to use, uh, which was great. It was, it was, uh, you know, very slow going. And um, whilst, you know, riding a bike, you know, as they say, you never forget how to ride a bike. And I thought maybe the same would go for a horse. Not the case. Uh, I do know here in the <laughs> States, they use they, they use a Western saddle as opposed to uh, back in Australia, we use a different sort of saddle set up. But I mean, I'm splitting hairs here. I, yeah, that wasn't the reason why I had no idea to ride. So it was a very, it was a very slow walk through the wilderness, um, but it was lovely. It was lovely nonetheless. Nice. Some uh, some more racing news, some more Everesting news. How uh, how was the week in the sport of performance road cycling? Gosh, we got a lot to talk about, don't we? But Everesting, one of our favorite topics, just like it seems like we're done for a while and somebody has put the, the goal out of reach or the best time out of reach, somebody does something extraordinary again. And this time it happened both on the women's and the men's side in the same week. 
Emma Pooley started it off by setting a new record of eight hours, 53 minutes, and 36 seconds, which bested uh, Hannah Rhodes' time by about 15 minutes. 13% grade, completing 10 laps. Like, this is legit. What I like most about this is that she raised money for Kate's Home Nursing Center in memory of Sharon Law, who was a former British TT champ who died in 2017 from cervical cancer. So she was quoted as saying that it was terrible and fantastic. And with warmer temperatures and times tumbling, this is surely going to stand for a while, isn't it, Gus? I mean, 15 minutes quicker? That's quite impressive. Well, mate, I'm reticent to say anything because I feel like every time the record has tumbled, uh, be it a men's or women's, we've gone, surely no one can go any faster. Um, But this week, on top of the fact that the record was broken twice, the myth of the Everesting record grows. And by that, Emma Pooley, no longer racing at the highest level, she goes and does a bunch of ultra running, a bunch of ultra cycling, you know, so no longer at that professional level, comes out, shows all the pros how it's done. The same can be said for the men. Alberto Contador. This guy, I mean, do you, I mean, do you remember this guy? I think it would be impossible to to forget. He set a time of 7 hours, 27 minutes and 20 seconds. That's a whole 2 minutes and 37 seconds faster than my little brother, Lockie. Um, I spoke to Lockie briefly via text after the record fell and he couldn't be more ecstatic that the record was broken by... Uh, someone that both Lockie and I looked up to and, and Lockie considers, um, in his words, the greatest climber. And so, yeah, he rode repeats of a kilometer of, what was the climb again, Bobby? Um, I don't remember the name of the climb, but it was definitely, he did it on a very short, steep section of it. And I think one kilometer up and one kilometer down. So, man, he was busy doing U-turns all day long, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. It was something like 72 times. But this is great. Uh, I think, you know, it's so cool to see someone who, you know, was at the pinnacle of the of the, of the the kind of professional world tour side of the sport. Um, he's left the sport now, but obviously still loves it, still, still loves to get out there and get after it. I mean, if you look at any of his Strava riding, you know that he still trains pretty darn hard. And so, yeah, interesting to see Alberto out there and, and chasing you know, the formidable Everesting challenge. Now to you, can that be beaten? Absolutely. We know your brother did it at altitude. He was only two minutes and 37 seconds um, slower than Alberto. Alberto doing this, you know, it's the first time of somebody of Alberto's pedigree that Mm. has broke the Everesting record. And I'm all for, I think you and I will both agree, we like riding our bikes. But in mm. retirement, man, I cannot see myself ever trying to do something like this. And when a guy like Alberto sets the record only by two minutes and 37 seconds, I think that's going to open up quite a few guys' aspirations of beating it. Because now you're not just doing it for fun. You're doing it to beat Alberto Contador, one of the best riders ever. So I don't know if Alberto knew what he was doing when he started this whole thing, but he may have to uh, repeat that effort a couple times once once people start taking a shot at his time. Yeah, we will see. We will see. And some other big news coming from Israel Startup Nation this week. Yep. Well, I guess all the rumors are true. It looks like Chris Frome is going to switch teams next year and ride for Israel Startup Nation. I mean, it's been 11 years 
that he's been on the Sky Ineos banner, under the Sky Ineos banner. And I think he's just decided that now's the right time to to make a little bit of a of a move. But it's going to be very awkward seeing him in a different jersey, that's for sure. How this is going to affect the, the team dynamic at Ineos, I think is going to be pretty interesting to, to watch. Mm-hmm. I just hope that he had... You know, after riding for 11 years and doing as much as he's done for the team, that they will treat him with the respect that he deserves. I mean, they're, they're Sky Ineos, they are a classy organization, and I hope that they let the legs and the roads of France decide the, the, the outcome or at least the leadership at Team Ineos this year and, and not any politics. All good things come to an end. We, we know that sooner or later. And the way that Chris has handled himself and the way that Team Ineos handles themselves, I think is going to be very important for the history of the sport. I mean, we all remember what happened with my personal hero, Miguel Indurain, towards the end of his career and kind of the falling out that he had with Benesto. Let's just hope that that doesn't ha- happen with Chris and Team Ineos. I'm excited. It'll be interesting to see, um, you know, a bit of a change up, a bit of a shake up. As you've said on numerous times before, and I think, you know, anyone will agree with you, um, that if there's one person that's going to, one, make a comeback from severe injury um, and overcome that adversity, and then also to shine uh, in a new organization, it's going to be Chris Froome. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to see the power dynamic shift a little bit when it comes to the Grand Tours. Speaking of, of, of Power Dynamic, Bahrain McLaren are looking for new sponsors after um, McLaren indicated that it is likely to pull out of the team. Yeah, this team was really coming together with Rod Ellingworth looking likely to start running another one of those super teams of the future. But this situation has thrown a spanner in the works, as they say in the in the UK. You know, they've already cut salaries. They seem to be only being kept afloat by the Prince of Bahrain. But I tell you one thing, if there's a guy that you want to be running a top-notch team, it's Rod Ellingworth. I hope it all works out, and I hope this is just a little speed bump for him and the team's future. So only time will tell. But all the best to Bahrain McLaren um, getting through the Tour de France and into 2021. Yeah, hopefully, um, as you said, that was a team that was turning into uh, a bit of a behemoth and with Rod Ellingworth at the helm, that was going to be exciting to see. So hopefully they can continue that. The Swiss National Time Trial was held over the weekend with uh, Marlon Rusa winning in the women's race by a comfortable margin over a Fizzo personal favorite, Yolanda Neff. Uh, was there in fourth place. In the men's, the dominant at the head of the Swiss time trial champs, I guess ever since the mighty Fabian Cancellara wrapped up his career, Stefan Kung uh, won that over Sylvian Dillier. And uh, that was a, a winning margin of 54 seconds, so a pretty pretty big win there to cap off his fourth national title in a row. And the Tour de France rolls on in its virtual capacity over the weekend. How did that play out, Bobby? Quite interesting. Again, I think Team Astana, like many of us uh, normal Zwifters, found out that internet connection and speed is critical to the platform. They actually had to pull out due to having poor internet up at the training camp that they're having, I think, up in Sierra Nevada. And um, to anybody that's ridden Zwift before, 
internet connection is everything. And if you don't have it, there's nothing that you can do about it. So that was, that was kind of a bummer, but they, they apologized for not being able to make the start. So yeah, we had stage three, which is on the, the new RGV route, which is a flat uh, 48 kilometer course through the French countryside. And it took on the iconic Pont du Gard aqueduct, which is uh, one of those famous things that you ride over in, in France. The women, the women's race was won by Tanya Urath from Germany. Uh, she races for Canyon Shram Racing. And she won by beating Chloe Digart by a very slim mar margin. And April Tracy was in third. In the men's, it was Matteo Del Sin from Rally Cycling, winning ahead of Jake Stewart from FDJ and Callum Scottson from Mitchelton Scott. So that's a pretty big win for Rally racing in their first well i mean it's everyone's first but but their f first tour de france i guess yeah they've been kicking around the top of the standings uh since last week and i think rally racing is really taking advantage advantage of this platform of racing and stamping out some great results uh they are using the Zwift Maestro and number one ranked Zwifter in the world, Holden Komu. Why not learn from the best? I mean, he's definitely got all the tricks down, so he's definitely making an impact on that team right away. Absolutely. And the fourth stage of the VTDF was held on the Zwift's also newly released uh, part of their France World RGV cassette putt route. Uh, yeah, they probably the, butchered that name. Yeah, the Kaspat route. Uh, that was, again, two laps. And it was won by April Tacey from Great Britain of the Drops team. This was her second stage win. And she won ahead of Anna Henderson from Sunweb and Lauren Stevens from the USA. Chloe Digart kicking around up there again. She finished a close fifth. And she's learning, hopefully learning that technique of sprinting on Zwift. And um, I'm predicting it now. I think she'll get a win next week. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't put it against her. She is, um, you know, seems to be one who, whatever, whatever platform she takes in the cycling world, once she masters it, she's pretty unbeatable. Interesting to note, Tacey broke her knee back in December and spent three months off the bike. Um, so that's a pretty incredible uh, effort that she's made to be back at such a high level so soon. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I guess the, the injuries and motivation and, and particularly during this, this time, perhaps the motivation that you need. So that was really exciting there. Team Silicon Valley is still leading the ranks or the yellow jersey competition ahead of drops and followed by Canyon Tram. Uh, 2020 Pro Cycling up to fourth now. Yeah. And in the men's event, Freddie Ovette, who was very close to winning last weekend from Israel Startup Nation, gets the win ahead of Nick Schultz from Michelton Scott and Michael Valgren, another Fizzo past interview from NTT Pro Cycling. Uh, of note, Lawson Craddock was sixth and he was very close to the win. So he's he's edging closer, just like Chloe is, to, to getting a, the top spot on the podium. Yeah, and Team NTT Pro Cycling still has the yellow jersey ahead of Rally Cycling uh, with Trek Segafredo in third heading into the final weekend. So, you know, Biani Reese said that NTT were continuing to push their form and, uh, and, and both on the virtual platform heading into the road, and they're certainly showing that here. Yeah, so, and I saw on social media actually that Michael was doing this at their training camp with Bjarna over his shoulder. 
And oh, really? l- let me tell you, there for anybody, when Bjarne Reese is looking at you, you better give 100%. And I think Michael <laughs> did, did really, really well. And yeah, the virtual Tour de France concludes uh, next weekend with a stage on Mont Ventoux on Saturday, followed by the final on the Champs-Élysées on Sunday. So those are two new, brand new courses that are going to be seen. And I think of, of all the courses that they've raced on, that's going to be pretty darn cool. Yeah, so tune in for that next week and for the final of the virtual Tour de France. Health is of major concern when it comes to the world of sport, whether that be a professional or at a recreational level. An area of increasing concern seems to be with heart health and with so many tragedies resulting from issues associated with the heart and the catalysts of those issues being varied and, if I'm honest, pretty confusing, we wanted to try and get a little closer to the heart of the heart issue. I am not a doctor, but I wanted to share my experiences with an arrhythmia or commonly known as a rapid heartbeat issue. And I know that there are many people out there that have similar issues. The objective of this episode today is to give athletes and listeners a little bit more information about this touchy subject, how to get it checked out, and most importantly, how to get it treated. There are many that are nervous to mention this out of fear of it becoming a potentially career-ending issue. In cycling alone, we have had our fair share of sudden deaths, but also many that have been flagged up, which often lead to early retirement. So we sat down with Mike Lepp to discuss in more detail the impact, effects, causes, uh, and just more general information uh, to do with exercise and heart. G'day, Mike. Welcome to Fizzo. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Hope you guys are doing well in this interesting time. We're doing our best, as, uh, as I think everyone is. Now, before we get going, you've known Bobby for quite some time. Uh, how do you two fellas know each other? You know, um, I was coaching in soccer and then I moved to cycling when I hurt my Achilles and psych became a big deal for me in the 80s and um, brought some big cycling events to Charlotte where I live and uh, George Hincappy lived here and got to know George and started kind of uh, mentoring him. He was a child at the time like Bobby was <laughs> to me. Um, this was probably what Bobby mid 90s. It was interesting. We were uh, going out for a ride to map out the Olympic time trial course that was going to be held in 96, uh, time trial qualification for the Olympics. And uh, George brought up uh, an issue to me that Bobby had been having in the Olympic trials, I guess it was in Pittsburgh, and um, related to his heart rate. And I was working in cardiology at the time. It's, you know, I was a sports scientist starting in the 70s before it was cool, right? But you couldn't make any money. And so I worked in cardiology and and really, it's a passion of mine. It was at my office, which was a heart facility, and uh, George brought it up and said Bobby was having this issue of 200, well, I don't know remember what it was, Bobby, 230 beats per minute on your probably old polar heart rate monitor. <laughs> and um, I said, that's not a good thing. So um, linked this up and um, went from there, I guess. Um, Bobby had a radio ablation, I think, at Duke. Uh, university with a new procedure, by the way, Bobby's probably in the first uh, 10,000 probably in the country and went on from there to uh, a really good career. So um, that's how we got to know each other. 
Yeah, I'll have to interject here a little bit too, because life is full of coincidences and um, guardian angels. And I, I truly look at you, Mike, as as being one of those little angels that just happened to pop into my life at exactly the right time. Um, like you said, I had a heart condition, um, which was a irregular heartbeat issue as far, far as I knew. I had it since I was very young. Didn't happen in many races, but that year in 1996, we had ridden, I had ridden personally on the front of the Tour de Pont for basically the whole race trying to have Lance Armstrong win the overall of the Tour de Pont that year, which he did, but it definitely was a big strain on me. The little trick that year was we had a very short turnaround before the Olympic trials started. I had an episode at the last stage of the Tour de Pont in 1996. I tried to fake it a little bit, hide it from my team because I was very nervous if my, my team manager or team doctor found out that I wouldn't be able to race anymore. And sure enough, it happened again the next, I think, 10 days later or eight days later at the Olympic trials in, in Pittsburgh during the Thrift Drug Classic. And right then and there, my team doctor, Max Testa, and my general manager of the team that I was riding for, Motorola, basically pulled me aside and said, hey, we're not going to allow you to race any longer until you figure out the situation. And for me, that was a death sentence because I had been dealing with this since I was 12 or 13 years old. I went through a lot of tests, never found what it was. And I, for some reason, went out for a training ride in Charlotte, like you mentioned, and feeling a little bit like just a man without a country. Like, why am I even riding my bike here? I'm not going to be able to race anymore. And I kind of rode up behind George Hincapie uh, alongside of him. And I just asked him out of desperation, trying to figure out what I was experiencing. I asked him, by any chance, is there any place where we could get a blood test? Because I was starting to think that this was a supplement issue, something with, you know, I was low in some electrolyte or whatnot. And he said, that is so weird that you say that because that building right there, which is about 500 meters in front of us, my buddy, Mike Lepp works there. So yeah, let's do it. So we all stopped. It was like Frankie Andreu, Kevin Livingston, Greg Randolph, George, and myself. And they go through the door and George meets you and, hey, how you doing? And I kind of just basically felt like dead man walking through that front door. And you not only knew my name, but you said something like, I heard about your heart situation. We can look at that and possibly take care of that over the weekend. And right away, my ears perked up because after a day and a half of basically being persona non grata, you know, kind of ostracized by the sport, there you are, that guardian angel that gives me hope that I can find out finally what this issue was about. And yeah, long story short, I go in, you know, see one of your specialists. Uh, a few days later, you hooked me up at Duke Medical Center where I had the, uh, the ablation done in 1996. And the rest was history. So for for me, I was very lucky to have someone like you being able to help me right away. But a lot of people that have, let's just say, for lack of a better term, irregular heartbeats, they may not know who to ask or what to do. And a lot of them just kind of deal with it. And that's that's really why I wanted to have you on today, because I know you've helped a lot of people in the past. We kind of want to bring this to the forefront and really let people know that this is very, very common and that it isn't something that should be ignored, that it should be something that is looked at 
by a medical professional and not just dealt with. You know, obviously, we were reminded of the situation very recently with uh, another 20-year-old Belgian passing away, Niels de Vrent, uh, about a week ago. We assume from preliminary information that this was due to heart failure. Um, nothing has been uh, confirmed there. But yeah, we just wanted to have you on to kind of give, give us some information of where we can go with this in the future and not only knowing that you have a condition, but also asking for help and then the possible treatments for, for, for these sort of things. So I don't really know where to start besides just kind of asking you some questions about what endurance sport does to change or in some cases damage the heart. You know, we, we often hear of an athlete's heart being big but what does that really mean? You know, Bobby, it's just to let a lot of people know, it's, it, it is a rare thing. I mean, we have lots of people cycling and running and triathlons, whatever. And it's, it's not like, you know, it's frequent, but the consequences to ignoring it can be bad. And usually, I mean, there's two ways to, you know, with arrhythmias, and we hear heart disease is the number one killer in the United States. Well, that's different. That's coronary disease. We're talking about a little different thing here with the electrical abnormalities, which probably come from two sources. One, probably with you, you might have had a virus when you were in the womb. You might have whatever, and it caused a short circuit in the electrical system of the heart that, you know, if you weren't an active person and you were just a guy sitting behind the desk every day, it probably wouldn't, it may not have shown up. I don't know. You brought up a good point. That year was a tough year, making the Olympic team, the trials, the biggest cycling event in the U.S. There's a lot of stress in that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. The stress hormones can precipitate arrhythmias. But then there's congenital defects. And you talk about athlete's heart. You know, I've brought a lot of great, and let me tell you, Tour de France level cyclists are not normal. <laughs> when you bring them into the into the lab and you look at things, initially a doctor would go, oh my gosh, what's, what's going on here? This heart's huge. So you, you must have some cardiomyopathy. That's a normal large heart. And there's not a lot of evidence that that really is an issue. It's congenital outflow defects and things like that where we, and that's how I got a lot of heart with the NBA. The NBA had issues. And in the eighties, we started testing NBA athletes because, uh, but most of those were congenital defects. Most people are going to know they have that. And then those congenital defects, that's probably going to end your career. If you have an outflow track thing and, and something like that, that's cause of an arrhythmia can be really serious. Then just the small electrical malfunctions of the heart, like you had, they're less understood. We know how to burn them out like we did with yours with the radioablation, but sometimes they can recur. We, when we are talking about a procedure that's, you know, is still as young in the medical procedure world as ablation, you know, down the road, there may be something, but they'll usually fix it. And I, I think the last thing I'd like to say is athletes have this, I don't want to admit I have a problem, pro athletes especially. In other words, even back then you thought, hey, I've put my life into this. And now if I tell somebody I've got something wrong with me, then I'm going to get thrown by the wayside, right? And unfortunately, that can be true. Uh, we're looking at that in mental health issues now in athletes admitting that, you know, being afraid to admit that, you know, they have depression. Well, it's the same thing. If you have a cyclist's engine, is that hard? <laughs> 
you know, its ability to pump oxygenated blood out is, and, and to go to somebody and say, oh, I might have an issue there, uh, is a tough thing. That's true even for the local cyclist who thinks, hey, I love to do this. I'm afraid to go get it looked at. You can't be. Yeah, you, you need to at least rule out because everybody feels those extra heartbeats, right, Bobby? I mean, you feel that one beat or, you know, but when the heart gets much above 200 beats per minute, its ability to get oxygenated blood out starts to be compromised. And when you're 230, 250, like you are in a lot of arrhythmias, there's no blood flow to the working muscles. You're going to get lightheaded. Um, not always. It's going to come out of on its own like yours did when it's just these electrical abnormalities. But it's easy to fix. And I'll let you share how. I mean, you went on to have a great rest of the <laughs> a great rest of the season at the Vuelta, and you know so. The first thing is admitting that it's an issue. And and you hit it right on the head. I had been dealing with this since I was 12 or 13 years old. The first time it happened to me in a race was in the 1988 Iron Horse Durango to Silverton race. And there's just nothing that you can do if this occurs during a race. You have to stop. You have to perform like certain bearing down techniques or carotid artery massage to get it to stop. And when you're riding, that's almost impossible. So I was hiding it for a very long time for the reasons that you mentioned. I was nervous that if Motorola, Jim Okowitz, Max Testa knew about this uh, because it happened so infrequently that I would be left off the team or not fired, but not allowed to race anymore. And that's kind of what led to the buildup, and if it wouldn't have happened during the Olympic trials in an important race, maybe I never would have gotten it taken care of. Maybe I would never have met you. Maybe I never would have been able to help the dozens of people that you and I have consulted with or spoken with over over the years. I, you know, I, I get it. It is very intimidating, but that's that's what we want to get across here: is that a lot of times these non life threatening issues are just dealt with. And we want to give the people some information that this is something that is worth looking into. Many, many riders, even I remember in the Tour de France one stage, I was, I had switched teams and I was up riding on the front and an ex-teammate comes up besides me and says, rider X is having the same heart palpitations that you have. What can he do to get them to stop? And, you know, we're going like 55K an hour, like riding hard tempo. And this guy's just fluttering out in the wind, trying to have this conversation with me. And I absolutely told him, okay, these are the things that he can do right now. But most of the time he's going to have to stop, maybe put his feet up on the guardrail and, and get it to stop. Luckily, he was able to get it to stop and he wound up finishing third in the sprint. But because he was able to get it to stop, I don't think it occurred enough to have his quality of life threatened. And that's that's the big thing when you come to the realization that my quality of life, whether it be a professional athlete or a recreational athlete, is being compromised here. Now I got to get it taken care of. And that's always that athlete's brain is I can deal with this mind over matter. I can tough it out. And just to let people know that that doesn't have to be the case all the time. And, you know, 
we look at a professional. I watched a great documentary on domestiques. I forget what the name of, of it was the other night. And, you know, the life of a, a professional cyclist, you're, you're talking, and it's like a lot of my Olympic uh, athletes that I work with. It's the Olympics being canceled this year. It, it's, it's your identity, right, Bobby? I mean, and you're worried about that identity and coming forward is, you know, going to compromise that. But it's also a guy who's been training for a, you know, a, a hundred mile bike century that, you know, was the you know center of their life. And all of a sudden, oh, I've trained for a year for this. And, you know, I put all this together and now, you know, I'll push through this. We're always taught in endurance sports, push through it, right? I mean, and in this case, the consequence to pushing through things like this can be, can be very detrimental. And, you know, you have to be able to, and there's so many, like I said, most arrhythmias are benign, but it's when in doubt, check it out. That's my, <laughs> that's what I tell people. It's, it's not a, you know, getting a cardiac ultrasound, wearing a heart rate, wearing a monitor, which I talk about, I think recently we used the new Apple Watch with you because it's certified by the FDA that you can, and, and I'm amazed that you can document these things with something as simple as an, an Apple Watch. So you know, it's not like you're going to go through some serious invasive thing to find out what this is. Mike, I just want to back up a little bit because you said something uh, back at the start, which I thought was interesting. Athletes and cyclists have a tendency to perhaps kind of misname things. Good example is lactic acid um, instead of saying blood lactate, right? They um, obviously don't relate to each other and to the human body necessarily. So I think it's important to address that heart attack is different to cardiac arrest because a lot of the reporting, particularly on young Niels, was saying heart attack was the uh, um, was the cause. Are we splitting hairs here, or is this important? Can you kind of just give us um, a bit of a, a, a the difference? That's a really good point because when you look in mainstream media, you're going to hear the word heart failure and heart attack. Technically, too, obviously, if your heart stops, it failed, right? I mean, mm -hmm. um, yeah. it's – but heart failure is a whole whole different disease sometimes caused by having a heart attack that damages the heart, that type of thing. Um, a heart attack is usually a coronary artery blockage that, you know, we're not talking – I'm not saying that cyclists and athletes can't have uh, those types of things. But with an arrhythmia, the heart has an electrical system. It's stimulated by an electrical current. But also, you brought up a chemical lactic acid. It has nothing to do with it per se. It, it, the chemical side of it is a, basically adrenaline, okay? So the heart can be stimulated by, the, by adrenaline and an electrical input. And when we're exercising, there's a combination of the, of the, of the two that you know, drives how fast it's going to be to meet the demands of what you're doing. When the electrical system, which is, goes from top to bottom, the atrium fire, and then the ventricles, two ventricles, one ventricle, the right ventricle sends blood to the lungs to get oxygenated, and then the other to the rest of the left ventricle to the rest of your body. When that doesn't follow sequence, that's an electrical abnormality. And when it decides to go from, let's say, Bobby's on a climb and he's probably well above his lactate threshold and he's 190 beats per minute on a climb, right? That's everything, you know, everything's functioning. The, the left ventricle is emptying, but let's say it short circuits and this other circuit kicks in that wants to go faster and kicks it up to 230 beats per minute. Well, now the left ventricle can't fill with blood. It's going so fast. And so it 
It doesn't fill with blood to send out to your working muscles into your brain. And that's an electrical malfunction of the heart. Not to say arrhythmias can't have chemical input. Potassium. Let's say that you're dehydrated. <laughs> if you're dehydrated, potassium levels are low. That can increase your susceptibility to arrhythmias for anybody. But but really, it's an electrical malfunction. Where and and so, like I said, we don't know yet the diagnosis from last week. And because the mainstream media just puts in the word heart attack or heart failure, um, mm-hmm. the likelihood that a 20-something individual has blockages of their coronary arteries, which is the primary heart disease, is very unlikely. Not to say that it's it's not. And we have a lot of cyclists that are out there competing in their 50s and 60s. Um, and that's something, especially if you have a family history, you should look at But in terms of having a heart attack. But typically, people in their 20s do not have heart attacks or heart failure. And then uh, to, to extend on that, sudden cardiac death, um, which is sort of is tied in with with these with these athlete incidents, right? What is the cause, and and how? Why is that so hard to predict? That's the electrical malfunction, right? right. Um, and there's two that can occur: a supraventricular arrhythmia, in other words, a short circuit above the ventricles. The atrium have a job of getting blood to the ventricles. That's a short distance, right? <laughs> They're mm-hmm. right together. Yeah. But a superventricular arrhythmia is less serious. It's still something to, to, to look at. It will drive your heart rate up, but the ventricles are still getting some blood and sending it out. A ventricular arrhythmia is pretty serious. And, and that's when you hear the word cardiac arrest and when you see someone on a medical show being shocked. Um, mm-hmm. That Now, that said... Uh, Bobby can tell you, I've seen ventricular arrhythmias that people are still fine. And that's usually because the heart's not diseased and there's no other things that could compromise it. But both of these arrhythmias, in most instances, will reset themselves. That doesn't mean you don't need to get it checked out because is there an underlying something? And like I said, it was in the early 90s when Andres Grinzig came up with the this procedure um, to be able to ablate arrhythmias. And Bobby can tell you, having gone through it, it probably is not a fun day <laughs> at the hospital, but you know, it's, it's fixable in a lot of instances. Now, if a person has an underlying heart disease, Steve Vermote, God bless him and his family, you know, was a cyclist we work with that ultimately the arrhythmia was coming from a disease of the heart muscle. And, and in that case, the arrhythmia's source is different than a short circuit of the electrical system. And, and that can be fatal. Um, once again, it's not a heart attack per se or heart failure, but an arrhythmia being precipitated by a disease of the heart muscle, um, which is a little different and, and much more rare. So when, when someone does decide to go and get diagnosed or at least get some information outside of having an ultrasound of the heart, you know, taking stress tests. I remember having to take a ramp test once, having blood work done. What more can be done? Because I remember with Steve in particular, he he passed all those tests. There wasn't really anything that that just jumped out and said, this is it. But what else can be done besides those those things? 
it's a different that's the, the whether it be is the because we're hearing all this with COVID now false positives <laughs> false negatives um the truth is not all tests are accurate i think tracking down arrhythmias can be tough you can tell that you you've probably worn monitors for days and it never happens and you go gee I w-, because everybody from insurance companies to everybody else wants to see it documented before you go in for this procedure or you go in. And sometimes it just, you know, as, uh, I can put somebody, you know, what's different when I put somebody, you know, in a stress test situation on a treadmill or a bike, the, the difference is it's not competition, right, Bobby? It's hundred <laughs> percent. You, you don't have that chemical, you know, adrenaline, you don't have those things there that might, be the things that precipitate um, the arrhythmia. That's why I'm kind of excited now as we're evolving into the ability to monitor with something is, like I said, um, I don't know who was thinking at Apple about, you know, getting that certified by um, medically, but uh, you and I have experience with it here recently. It, it's, a, it's amazing that a $350 watch is a lot cheaper version than, you know, a four or five thousand dollar heart rate monitor to wear for days. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but when in doubt, check it out. That's that's you know the ideal thing is contact your doctor and and let them know what's going on and get it documented and get it fixed. It, it, it's a quality of life issue too, isn't it, Bobby? I mean, it, it's you know being a father and you know, a husband, it, it's quality of life issues when you're worried about every time you, you, I've seen some people really psychologically drained by this being a chronic issue. Yes. Quality of life. I mean, for me kind of to jump ahead a little bit as well. So I had a SVT, uh, supraventricular tachycardia in 1996. I had that ablated, had no issues for 20 some odd years. And then in February of 2019, all of a sudden I started having these episodes again. And at first, just like every athlete and just like I was in 1996, I said, okay, this was a one-off. But not having had that happen for so long really made me nervous. And what does being nervous do? It, it creates adrenaline, it creates anxiety, which is a trigger for this sort of thing. And it started happening pretty much every day for about a week. And I went in to get it checked and passed all these tests, did the ramp test, did the blood test, the ultrasound, the EKG, everything. And all we were missing was that little sample or strip of an EKG because yes, I did wear a, a portable monitor. Uh, it didn't seem to work. The doctor that I went and saw at in, in Greenville, South Carolina, Dr. Joseph Manfredi, he kind of looked at me after all these tests and after all this time and said, listen, you know, if this is going to be something that affects your quality of life, we need to dig deeper into it. But by that time, it had stopped uh, happening so often again. So I was back into that, hey, I'm just going to deal with it. And I walked out of his office almost deflated because that's a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of expense to do this diagnosis. And then there was no final conclusion. There was no, hey, you need to stop writing or, hey, you need to get an ablation because we lacked that little strip of the EKG. And I dealt with it for another year. And I would, I was having symptoms 
And when I go back and look at it now, they were more simple. I had episodes related around an event. You know, I'm not racing anymore, but even events, pinning on a number, being on a start line on time, et cetera, create some anxiety and adrenaline. And I was having these minor episodes, which would happen very briefly. I'd get it to stop and then I could continue. And then about two months ago, I started to have them happen more and more frequently. And that's when I contacted you again. That's what led to me uh, getting an Apple Watch. Few people had suggested, hey, you know, the Apple Watch is FDA approved for the EKG function. Why don't you get one of these? And when you have an episode, take a sample of the episode and send it to us. And that was that was a game changer for me because I think a lot of people just don't know how easy it is to document a episode. And then that falls into, hey, I don't know what to do with it. Even if I got it, where do I go from there? And that to me... It- Bobby, I know this when you sent it to me. I looked at it. I don't know if I've told you this, but I had to go to the bathroom real quickly and um, so I wouldn't shit my pants. So um, it was pretty. <laughs> oh, wow. It was pretty. I'm not I didn't want to panic you because I could see you had enough concern. But um, and, you know, I had never used the watch to, to document. I said, wow, this is better than five thousand dollar monitors we <laughs> used to use. And it was just on your wrist. So fortunately, we got that. And um, I'll let you continue. But I don't think I've told you yet that you kind of startled me a little bit with that. No, I must admit, I, I, I sent those samples or those strips to yourself, to Dr. Manfredi, to Dr. Jay Blankenship in Greenville, and I pretty much got an overwhelming, like, I think it's time to get this checked out. And I actually wound up texting Dr. Manfredi on Memorial Day, and I didn't think he would respond. Uh, five minutes later, he responds, send me the strips. I sent him the strips. And then instantly he was like, yeah, we need to, to take care of this. So it was something totally different. So before I had SVT, then this was diagnosed as RVOT, which stands for right ventricular outflow track tachycardia. And I started to, my first question was, is this genetic? And he used a word that I had never heard before, idiopathic. And idiopathic means that it's not genetic, that it's spontaneous or from an unknown cause. Because here I am saying, I had this 20 some odd years ago, and now it's back. And I wanted to look to see if this was a genetic thing. But in fact, it is idiopathic. And I've been lucky to, to actually get to the bottom of both these episodes. And since then, um, since I had it ablated the day after Memorial Day, I haven't had an issue, knock on wood. But it's it just goes to show you that these things, you got to stay on top of these sort of things and don't just put it off because there could be, I'm not going to call it a simple fix. You alluded to that day in the hospital um, of being a little bit uh, not not easy, but man, it was so worth it because the phys- the mental toll that you have having this kind of hidden in the background takes a lot out of you because you're always thinking about what if this happens? What if I'm what if I'm Chris Froome? What if I'm Egon Bernal and this happens, you know, on a mountain stage of the Tour de France? Th- those are the sort of things that go through your mind. You know, you hope that they happen when you're sitting there watching TV, but often they do happen during a race when when you can't hide it. So Well, during those races is when that chemical contribution 
makes you vulnerable. Dehydration, I can tell you, is can be a huge issue. You know that. When potassium levels get, those are things that will precipitate. It, it's there, but you don't want to do, and, you know, all the things we talk about now, sleep, lack of sleep, you know, uh, overtraining, uh, lack of recovery, all of those things can, can precipitate that. And that is usually in a big event. Listen, so a couple of things here um, that, that you both sort of touched on, and one is the spontaneity of this, right, Bobby, your case in point. I'm interested to know, do these or can these arrhythmia events, these abnormalities um, in the electrical function of the heart do permanent damage? Um, not really, um, unless a person gets in a cardiac arrest situation mm-hmm. and then is resuscitated and, you know, there may be some damage from that. Once again, I think a good example, Bobby, was, you know, when his first ablation was able to compete, you know, quite well. Now, I, you know, I'm also one of these people saying, I've never asked Bobby this is how much of that too was psychological, you know, knowing mm-hmm. that you had, you know, that that was out of the way and, you know, but obviously not having that arrhythmia during serious times during an event, you know, helped, but it's usually not unless you get into a cardiac arrest type situation going to do any kind of permanent damage. Well, let me tell you, it's it's not a fun feeling. There's no doubt about it because, uh, you know, 230 beats to 250 beats a minute. I remember the first couple of times it happened, people were saying, hey, you're just getting interference from the the electrical wires that were going underneath. But you can, you can feel it. It's, it's all of a sudden you go from feeling fine to absolutely just having nothing. I mean, you, if you're sitting there riding at 400 watts, you can't ride more than 200 watts. But that, that mental part of it was huge for me because I was always riding around kind of with a handbrake on. And as soon as I got that ablated and the procedure went so well, that handbrake kind of came off. And, you know, I was able to, to go on and, you know, made some decisions in, in my career based off of that, that kind of projected me to where I am today. But at the same time, it was, it was a relief, just like it was a relief a month and a half ago when I got the second one done, because it's, you're telling yourself this is a non-fatal issue, but when your friend looks down and sees your heart rate at 252 and kind of turns white in the face, you know that this is not something you know you should mess around with but the the support out there nowadays is so much better than than you know even 20 some odd years ago when i had it done the first time so to to the people out there that have these issues just get it checked out if in doubt get it checked out i love that um what you said there mike always assume you know it could be the more serious issue um, and, um, don't hesitate to contact me. I know the last time Bobby and I was before zoom calls and everything else, but I know there were three or four athletes that had came, come forward with the same issues and we're able to help them. Uh, we're always ready to give you advice. And, um, sometimes the medical system is tough right now because <laughs> I don't even want to look, look at today's news yet to find out how full hospitals are getting, but, um, 
you know, so sometimes it's it's a little more difficult. But I have a group of cardiologists I work with that, that you know, you find know people in other places and, and can help. And um, so don't hesitate if you have any questions to, you know, contact me. And Mike, one last question from me. Um, in my research uh, for on, on this topic, I spoke with Dr. Kevin Sprouse, who's the head of medicine at EF Education First, to kind of get uh, an understanding of the protocol that they're putting their riders through, um, I guess, you know, ready for the start of the new 2020 season. Um, and one point that he raised that, that, that is interesting uh, and, and perhaps not surprising, um, but he said that COVID-19 had presented an issue um, as the virus sort of typically tends to focus or go towards the heart and the lungs and that type of thing. You know, Kevin's sort of saying, uh, and, and he's actually today with an athlete who's presenting symptoms to do with their heart in this situation. I was just interested to ask you, what issues uh, does COVID seem to pre- be presenting when it comes to the heart and potentially um, when it comes to exercising? You know, obviously, I don't care what, um, but that's typical once again, Uh, Bobby can corroborate, you know, when you're an athlete, sometimes you just say, well, I'm going to ride through it or I'm going to, you know, obviously any illness you shouldn't, you first off, they always say training is not going to stick when you're out with the flu trying to ride a bicycle or, or do anything. But the scary part about COVID now is it's probably going to be quite a while before we know what the long-term effects, even if you were asymptomatic, is it affecting Two things that bother me these days, one is the heart component, where they're seeing the cardiovascular system, like you just said, having some damage, and and now also brain issues. So I think it's going to be a bit before we know. Obviously, if you have any symptoms of COVID, and they're published on the WHO and CDC, you need to see a doctor <laughs> and, and uh, you know... You certainly don't need to say, well, hey, I'm going to go grind a ride out, you know, today because like all of us, we want to get out of the house and, and, and do whatever. And, and, and you can't do that. I think it's going to be, I think, yes, some of the, it's very disturbing, these early issues about lung and heart issues. But now we're also starting to see maybe some um, secondary damage, brain damage and things like that. So um, hopefully we're going to be wrong about those things. Um but um, we're just going to have to wait and see. It's scary. Yeah, it is indeed. It is indeed. And I think that's a, a, an important note um, to, to athletes. I don't think a lot of people think of that necessarily as we're sort of, I guess, seeing by the general public here in, in the US for sure. Mate, I really appreciate your time. Um, this has been fantastic and I think very insightful myself but also for, for the listeners. So thank you for, uh, again, coming on the show. Nearly, I was just looking at the date. It's got to be around a year after we spoke, I think, last year at the tour? Yeah, yeah, we were in the, um, of course, I don't know what date anything is these days, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess we are in the middle of the tour. It probably was a year ago, but um, I'm always listening to you guys. You guys do great stuff and uh, always proud of Bobby, uh, not only as a great athlete and sharing your goods, but being a great dad. I love seeing uh He's down and down and having a good time with the family, so that's important. Yeah, being being a a good dad is uh, in that question mark territory. I, I try my best, <laughs> um, but we're surviving. We're surviving. Mike, thank you so much again for coming on the show, and 
hopefully our listeners will um, will at least be a little bit more informed than than prior. So thank you very much for taking time out of your day. Thank you, guys. So I wanted to add, Bobby, um, after our discussion with Mike, I also spoke earlier uh, in the morning with Dr. Kevin Sprouse, who I mentioned he was actually today with another athlete of his and, and going and doing some testing to do with, with their heart to make sure it was healthy after a COVID scare, I believe. And I one thing I want to highlight, um, which we didn't get a chance to touch on in the interview, and that is the Team EF Education's protocol for monitoring for diagnosing and for reintroducing athletes to competition because I think um, that's something that's not typically spoken about but I also think is really interesting. So, he said that the UCI is very good um, when it comes to to heart health and they have a, a bunch of mandates that athletes have to be subject to each year or every second year in order to be allowed to race. Each year, an athlete must under, undergo an ECG um, in order to make sure the, um, you know, the heart's beating properly. Um, and then every second year, they undergo what's called an echocardiogram, um, which is essentially similar to an ultrasound of the heart or, uh, and you mentioned this in the, inter- in the interview, a stress test. Um, where the heart is the focus of that. And so, he also mentioned that whilst the effectiveness of these protocols are relatively limited and, and uh, you know, as the first symptom for, for a lot of these cases is unfortunately death, um, he did say that in cycling and, and the UCI's um, mandates are typically better than most other sports. Um, he also wanted to note that in their team, they have the athletes fill out a questionnaire with questions about family history obviously um, immediate questions to do with any family history of heart issues. Um, but some interesting things he also said were on that were on that list of questionnaires, which which I thought were kind of strange, but they make sense. And, and that was, he said, um, they also look at relatives and, and sort of close um, family members who have either had incidents like a drowning or a single, uh, single car car accident. And he said that was because uh, their typical accidents, which will be attributed to, you know, obviously a car accident or the drowning as the cause of death, but they may be preceded by by uh, one of these one of these um, heart issues. So I thought that was definitely worth mentioning. Um, he also did say that of all the athletes that he's worked with, he's only ever had one one rider that uh, they had to. Well, they recommended very strongly, and ultimately the, their advice was taken, and that was to retire. Um, and so, you know, the issue can can be overcome, and, and whilst it does result in retirement, I, or can can result in retirement, it's not always the case. Yeah, I, I find myself counting my lucky stars quite often because I was able to have these procedures done that allowed me to finish out my career. But there have there's a long list of guys that have had to stop their career early, mm. and I remember one case in particular with Kim Kirshen from Luxembourg. That was a pretty serious one. Um, we recently lost Nicholas Portal, who had to retire early from from bike racing. Um, you know, they're doing the best that they can do to flag up. But I think if anyone takes anything out of this episode, it's like, okay, they may not have seen it on the test on that day. But if you mm-hmm. are experiencing any sort of heart arrhythmias, extra heartbeats, rapid heartbeats, Take it upon yourself to go and get it checked out. I know that it's a scary situation. 
I know that that many of the riders want to keep this secret, but it's it's the only way to move forward. And um, I do remember doing those little EKG tests and stress tests, and we just didn't take them serious because, you know, they're going to stress us on an ergometer for, you know, 15 minutes to get our heart rate, you know, close to our anaerobic threshold. And, um, but take it more serious is what I'm saying. Mm. Take it from me who kind of looked at it as a joke that those people are there trying to help you. Um, the UCI, the world tour teams have these protocols in place. Uh, but there are still people that are unfortunately dying from, from heart related issues right now. And if we can help one person through this episode, then it was a success. Part of that is admitting that you need help and going and talking to the, the proper people. Yeah, absolutely. I was out training with a good friend of mine um, who lifelong cyclist and was only mid-30s uh, and, you know, felt lightheaded, was like my heart's beating really fast. He lay under a tree, you know, we were quite a ways out in the countryside and he, you know, was sort of attempting to get back on the bike, attempting to kind of get going again and, and I was with my, my little brother Lockie. You know, there was a couple other people there as well and we were also like, I think you should maybe, you know, let's just call an ambulance. Like, I think you should maybe get this checked out. It's not worth uh, worth um, pushing. Uh, and so, we called the ambulance and he ended up being airlifted and was, and was only just survived. Um, and so, you know, the issue is serious and can escalate pretty quickly. So, I think that's, you know, just remember like it's not worth pushing through, I think is, is, is the takeaway here. And that's it, everyone. Thank you for your time listening this week. And a special thank you to Kevin Sprouse and Michael Lepp for taking the time to contribute to this episode. You can find all our past episodes, as well as a lot of other great cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Don't forget, please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program, and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and to everyone that has reached out to us with episode suggestions, with with support for previous episodes, etc. Thank you so much. We do definitely take those on board, even if we don't get the chance to get back to you. Um, so if you do want to get in touch with us, reach out to us on Instagram at that is Gus uh, for me or at Bobby.julik for Bobby on Instagram. Um, so yeah, shoot us any suggestions, any feedback. We really appreciate it. That's all for this week. And so, until next week, thank you very much for listening. My name is Angus Morton. Thank you, everyone. This is Bobby Julik reminding you to stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on.
Just...